Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And we are happy to be here for many reasons, uh, especially because it is a Poirot that we are covering this week. And you know how much I love a good Poirot, Kemper. You were due one, Catherine. (laughs) We were able to wallow in a Marple novel last time. We now have a Poirot on our hands. What are we covering, Catherine? We are covering After the Funeral, a.k.a. Funerals Are are Fatal. Funerals Are Fatal is, in fact, the copy that I read. And I think we posted it on our Instagram. That's right. And yes, Funerals Are Fatal, the U.S. version, was the first serialization that we have in the Chicago Tribune in 1953. In the UK, it was serialized a little later that same year in John Bull. And then in book form, it was first published in the US by Dodd Mead, of course, as Funerals Are Fatal again in 1953. And a little later that same year by Collins Crime Club, our old friend in the UK, under Chrissy's chosen title, After the Funeral. Catherine, who are our victims for this novel? Um, we start with Richard Abernathy, the patriarch of the Abernathy clan, who seemingly died a natural death at home until a chance comment at his funeral raises the specter of murder. Mm. More on that chance comment, because our second victim is Cora Lanskine. Cora is Richard's sister, who had an unpleasant habit of blurting out unwelcome truths. And she is the one to raise the aforementioned specter of Richard's murder. And she is then hatcheted to death in her bed in her cottage the very next day. So interestingly, this is not a closed circle mystery. Both the deaths happen in easily accessible places. That said, uh, the suspects are primarily family. The book lays out a very fun family tree at the beginning. And we don't normally do this, but my copy, as I already mentioned, is this pocketbooks paperback. uh, And the first printing was June 1954. The copy I am reading is the 14th printing of this paperback has a wonderful cast of characters next to the family tree. And in that cast of characters, they have the page in which they're introduced in the book. And then they have a very pithy description. And because I liked them so much, we're going to go through our suspects just quoting this copy of Funerals Are Fatal. That's so fantastic. And I'm jealous, Catherine, because my UK edition has nothing of the sort. All right. First up, we've got Helen Abernethy, Richard's favorite sister-in-law, St. Helen of the Blameless Life, Poirot called her. And we have Maud, Mrs. Timothy Abernathy. She was always at the beck and call of her ailing husband. But where had she been the day Cora was murdered? Then there's Timothy Abernethy, Richard's brother, an invalid who really enjoyed ill health. George Crossfield, uh, Richard's nephew, his weaknesses were horses and women, and he was unlucky with both. Next up is Rosamund Shane, Richard's niece. To her, anyone who looked as frumpy as Aunt Cora was better off dead. Then we have her husband, Michael Shane. Rosamond's handsome husband, who, spoiler, had the only airtight alibi. He's been too busy committing adultery to have time for murder. Ooh. Then there's Susan Banks, Richard's other niece, and the only one who'd inherited his brains. Then Gregory Banks, Susan's colorless husband. The family disapproved of him because he worked in a chemist's shop. Next up is Miss Gilchrist, Cora's genteel companion housekeeper. But was she too ladylike to listen at keyholes? And then we have my favorite, frankly, Kemper. Mm. We have Lanscombe, a model gentleman's gentleman, but his gentleman, Richard Abernathy, was dead. Those are so fantastic. 
All right, well, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. We open at the funeral of Richard Abernethy and Richard's sister Cora, who no one has seen in 20 years due to a familial spat. She married a ugh, painter. Yeah. <laughs> a French painter at that. Uh, Tell her. Are. <laughs> she has shown up to pay her respects, only to casually note to all in attendance with a bird like tilt of her head. But he was murdered, wasn't he? Cora was always supposedly very naive, but seemed to, quote unquote, know things. So this is in keeping with her rather strange character from when she was younger. Right. So after the funeral, the entire family is thrown off kilter, um, but no one is more concerned than Mr. Antwessel, who's Richard's longtime solicitor and friend. He's the executor of the estate, especially because guess what? Cora is found murdered in her village the next day. And Aunt Whistle heads up there to assess the situation. Turns out Cora lived in a rented cottage along with a companion, Miss Gilchrist, who found the body after Cora, who'd been tired from her funeral trip, had taken a nap. And apparently someone came in through a window while Miss Gilchrist was out doing errands and axed Cora over the head brutally while she was sleeping. And she was, quote unquote, you know, lightly robbed. Um, But the few trinkets that had been taken were found in the outside bushes. Yeah, it's worth noting this is something that John Curran commented on, too, that this is one of Christie's more brutal murders in the of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's terrible. She's hatcheted. This is clearly a battered and bloody body in a bed. You know, he compared it to Simeon Lee in Hercule Poirot's Christmas and also Miss Sainsbury Seal in One Two Buckle My Shoe. Mm-hmm. And I would add um, Mrs. McGinty in Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Yeah. It's just always worth pointing out because Christie is not super cozy. These things do happen in Christie from time to time. We do get brutal, bloody murder. So from the get-go, this whole murder case, which is headed up by the rather bland, but for some reason likable, Inspector Morton. Uh, right. He didn't have much to recommend him, but I, I sort of liked him. Um, he was fine. Yeah, he was fine. The whole thing just feels off because... Miss Gilchrist, who was the one in the cottage with Cora, has no obvious motive. As Cora had no money, she didn't own their home, she was a renter. All Miss Gilchrist inherits are an amethyst brooch. And Cora's own little sketches, uh, you know, she dabbled in oil paintings, mainly of seaside scenes. The rest of Cora's estate is just a few hundred pounds and some drab furniture, which goes to her niece Susan, since they both made marriages that their family considered disadvantageous. We also find out from Miss Gilchrist that Richard, Cora's brother, had in fact seen Cora before his death. And when he came to the cottage, he apparently discussed with her that he hadn't been feeling well and that he had certain suspicions about the rest of the family. Hmm. So Mr. Atwistle talks to the members of the family again. And what we get from all these interviews is that everyone is rather greedy. They're obsessed with money. And while it seems pretty unlikely that they murdered Richard... It also seems like too much of a coincidence that Cora would have been randomly murdered the day after proclaiming her brother murdered. So at a loss, he knows something is wrong. Mr. Antwistle decides to pay a visit to an old friend. And what follows, I have to say, Kemper, is a delightful two to three pages that are only about food. Because who is that? Who is that friend? Oh, I think it just might be Hercule Poirot. Continue, Catherine. I don't want to deprive you of the joy of introducing Poirot into the story a bit late, albeit. Yeah, he shows up in chapter seven, and that's about a third of the way through the book. However, 
Uh, Mr. Entwistle complains that it's a long rambling story, I'm afraid, he says. And Poro insists that then they will eat first. And so it's followed by some pâté de foie gras accompanied by hot toast in a napkin. We will have our pâté by the fire, said Poirot. Afterwards, we will move to the table. You certainly know how to do yourself well, Poirot. Trust a Frenchman. I'm a Belgian, but the rest of your remark applies. At my age, the chief pleasure, almost the only pleasure that still remains, is the pleasure of the table. Mercifully, I have an excellent stomach. It goes on considerably after that, before we actually get to the rest of this, which is why Mr. Entwistle is actually there, which is why Kemper. He's at a loss with this whole Cora and Richard business, and we get a recap of everything that we've just read, and Poirot notes that Mr. Entwistle doesn't appear to really believe that Richard was murdered. In fact... Poirot notes, we should always pay attention when Poirot is noting anything. The only evidence that Richard was murdered was what Cora said, since Richard's body has been cremated, so there's no autopsy to be done. The only way forward is to determine who killed Cora and work backwards from there to see if someone murdered Richard. So at long last, we do have Poirot on the case here in our Poirot novel. In the interim, Susan, dear niece Susan, has gone to Cora's village to look at her departed aunt's belongings and see if any of those paintings in her cottage are worthwhile because money. Again, the family are a bit greedy. She is met at that cottage by Alexander Guthrie, an old friend of Cora's who Cora apparently had asked to take a look at some of the paintings she recently purchased in case they were worth anything. Apparently, Cora was constantly convinced she might have found, you know, a lost Rembrandt, etc. And Guthrie looks around, but no surprise, he's disappointed. He sees nothing of value. And Susan and Miss Gilchrist are left to eat some mysteriously delivered wedding cake, because sure. Except that in the end, Miss Gilchrist is actually the only one who eats it. Susan declines. And she ends up being poisoned with arsenic from that wedding cake. However, Miss Gilchrist is not murdered because she only ate a little bit of that wedding cake. Why, you ask? Did she not eat all of it? (laughs) And this, I'm happy to say, this is one of the things that I remembered from my initial read decades ago because it's so weird. So Miss Gilchrist apparently only ate a little bit of it and then put most of the piece under her pillow because there is a one could call it an old wives tale folklore, what have you, that if a maiden lady does this, she will dream of her husband, which apparently saved her life because she was merely made sick by the cake and was not killed. So Poirot hires the services of a private investigator named Mr. Gobi, previously seen in The Mystery of the Blue Train. This will not be the last time we see him. This is technically a series-long character. We don't get a lot of him here, yeah. so I don't think we'll be bringing him up again, but it's just worth noting. Well, we might. He, he has an interesting uh, sort of patois going. He does. He, he, there's, he is rather Dickensian. I thought. Yes. He's a bit Uh of a Dickensian character. Like, he wouldn't seem out of place in Bleak House, for example. Right. Uh, Which will will come up later on when we are talking about the adaptations for this book, actually. Um, But yeah, he first appeared in Mystery of the Blue Train, and then he will make a reappearance in Third Girl and Elephants Can Remember. Much, much later Poirot. So that is something to look forward to. 
He's hired to keep tabs on the family and check their whereabouts for both murders. As we've previously said, they all have some financial motive. For example, George gambles, Rosamond spends wildly, or they have a secret. Michael's having an affair. Susan went on a mystery drive. Her husband, Greg, was previously in an insane asylum and lied his way into that chemist job or some combination of both. So um, Timothy is... Not as sick as he appears to be, but he is, however, more financially unstable. And his wife, Maud, possibly for unclear reasons, sabotaged her own car. And even saintly Helen doesn't have an alibi. Right. And we are majorly glossing over all of and the we're doing familial it. We're doing it because there is a lot of it. This is not actually a very short Christie. No, this is a pretty substantial Christie. Yeah. And a lot of this detail, I have to say, Kemper, I don't know how you felt about it, but I thought it was really delightful to read. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's a lot of so-and-so went to this street, then so-and-so went to Regent Park. Then so, you know, if we had to actually talk about all of their movements, we'd be here for a long time. We would. And it's all beside They're the all point. red herrings. Yeah, they're all red herrings because the family as a unit is a red herring because it wasn't anyone in the family. However, I did find it delightful and diverting yeah. No, I really like it. And it fills out the world of the book. In such a wonderful, particular way. Yeah, no, completely. And I actually felt similarly to this book as I did to Appointment with Death. Spoiler alert Mm -hmm. for that novel in case you have not yet read that. Fast forward a little bit. But in Appointment with Death 2, there is so much going on in terms of the... World building. Just the world building of that that family with with its horrendous mother figure and all of the relationships between the mother and the siblings. And it all is beside the point to the resolution of the puzzle mystery. But I didn't mind because it's part of what makes that book so great. And I feel similarly about a lot of the characters in this book. I think they're well-drawn. I think they're interesting, even though they have nothing to do with well, puzzle mystery. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny because the book is primarily about the family. It just happens to be that the puzzle mystery is less about the family. Yes. And I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but also the solution of the puzzle mystery lies in who gets overlooked by a family like this, which seems to be obsessed with itself and so inward looking to its own peril. She's sort of like setting a scene here and building a world that has to function and be believable for the resolution to have the impact that it does, even though in terms of the mechanics of the puzzle mystery, the family are all beside the point. But as a... As a novel. As a novel, novel, exactly. It's about them. It's about them. So that's why it doesn't fundamentally bother me. And I, and I do feel the same way about Appointment with Death. I think that this is a better novel than Appointment with Death. And I think that's part of the reason why so many people like it, because who doesn't love a novel about a dysfunctional family? But every passage is good. You know, I, we just said that we were glossing over all of their movements, but every single interview with them is entertaining is either, and well-drawn. Yeah, interesting or funny or both. No, right. totally. I can't pass up the opportunity to reference Anna Karenina with you, Catherine, but you know, dysfunctional <laughs> families. Hello. I'm not going to fault Christy for spending most of her novel giving us a fantastic and sprawling dysfunctional family. Back to our story here. Poirot decides to go to Enderby himself, arranging for all of our suspects to convene there under the pretext that it's been sold to UNARCO, the United oh, Nations Aid for Refugee Center Organization. 
I love how that acronym kind of peters off there at the end. Like, doesn't really make sense. And everyone yeah. calls it narco. I know. And also it just seems like Poirot decides it off the top of his head. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's playing a role here. He's pretending to be Monsieur Pontarlier representing this government agency. That's unusual, too. I mean, we don't often see Poirot pretending to be someone he isn't. We did in Five Little Pigs. Actually, when he's pretending to be doing research for a book, for example, he does it when it uh, serves his purposes. So I like that he's a little bit undercover here. Although I do have to say he's really not undercover because um, Mr. Antwistle tells Helen much earlier on in the book that he's engaged Monsieur Poirot. Well, right. And Rosamond also knows immediately that it's him. Right. And sort of blows his cover. And it's actually one of the better Poirot moments for me in this book is that when he finally sort of does the big reveal, of like, I am Poirot. Everyone's like, who? Who? Yeah. <laughs> there were no gasps of astonishment or of apprehension. His name seemed to mean nothing at all to them. They were less alarmed by it than they had been by the single word detective. Oh, poor Poirot. Poor Poirot. So yeah, he proceeds to have many of the same conversations with these people that we've heard before, but there are a few key bits that we're going to highlight so that we can make sense of this mystery. Uh, first up, Miss Gilchrist mentions a lovely arrangement of wax flowers on a green malachite table. Then there is a bit of back and forth about how no one really looks at nuns' faces since they're all dressed alike. Okay. Speaking of nuns, apparently... Oh, definitely <laughs> speaking of nuns. So many nuns. So many book. nuns in this story. Apparently, two of them knocked on Cora's cottage the day before she was murdered. And even though no one answered, which makes sense since Cora was obviously at the funeral and Miss Gilchrist was on an excursion in Bournemouth, they heard, quote, sighs and groans, end quote, inside, which makes no sense. Then also, Helen has some sort of epiphany involving mirrors and reflections that we never get to hear, because in the moment she's about to tell Mr. Ambusol over the phone, oops, she gets conked on the head, though fortunately she isn't killed, and that definitely has a whiff of Christie's 1950s second, if not third, murder late in the story, not really seeming all that convincing to it. I didn't uh, totally buy although, that sequence. Yeah. It's not as bad as the murder of Alex and that poor boy from the reformatory, and they do it with mirrors, but it's almost as bad. Well, she's not. I mean, we assume that she will have a recovery. Sure, sure. It's just I didn't find it to be a very convincing sequence of events and an otherwise very convincing story. And then finally, before we get to our clues, Susan is very dismissive of poor Cora's sketches, noting that Miss Gilchrist harps on about how they were all painted from nature. But Susan knows that at least one of them wasn't because it's a fairly new painting and it's of the pier at Paul Flexen, except the pier was blown up in the war. So at the time that Cora was painting it, that pier didn't exist. So she and couldn't have painted it from nature. More importantly, Susan, because she's essentially looting the house, Susan <laughs> also finds a postcard with a very similar picture. Of the actual pier at Paul Flexen. Yeah. Right? So she's like, clearly Cora painted this from the postcard that I found. All right, Catherine, I think it is time to talk about some clues. We get most of these clues toward the beginning of the book. I will start us off with clue number one. And this is tricky, but perhaps it's a little less tricky in that this book immediately follows They Do It With Mirrors. So we're about to spoil They Do It With Mirrors a little bit. Fast forward if you would like. Everyone assumes that since Cora said Richard was murdered and then Cora was then murdered, that Richard had to have been murdered. The only person who doesn't assume that right away is Poirot. And our deduction here should be that Christie loves nothing more than to upend 
our fundamental assumptions in a novel. And this is sort of like our first fundamental assumption is, oh, well, Cora was murdered because Richard was murdered. All right. The reason why I think it's it's helpful to bring up They Do It With Mirrors is that we had the exact same situation there in that the entire book we're assuming that Carrie Louise was the ultimate murder victim. And then Christian Goldbranson's death was merely conditional on it. He was killed because he knew that someone was trying to kill Carrie Louise and his death was a means to the ultimate killing of Carrie Louise. We find out at the end of that book that Carrie Louise was never a murder victim and that the true focus of the murderer was Christian Goldbranson. Well, what if it's the same thing here? Richard wasn't a murder victim whatsoever and Cora is the ultimate murder victim. What if she is the true focus the whole time? So I kind of sort of defy any reader to really get there on her own. But given that these two books are one uh, after another, yeah, adjacent to each other, it's possible. Yeah. And especially when we start to add up some of the next clues, because clue number two is a Christie classic. Oh, boy. It's costumes, my friends. Costumes. We get it all in that sequence about nuns and costuming. It is very spelled out. So if you didn't get it earlier on, it is directly spoken about later and how you could commit a crime as a nun, especially because, for example, it would cover your feet. That's one of the lines that I somehow remember in this. (laughs) But who was, uh, let's say, wearing a wig at the funeral? The false hair is noted. That would be Cora. And that goes along with no one recognizes her since it's been so long. And so that also could be that they don't recognize her because perhaps Cora is not who she says she is. Indeed. All right. We got another Christie classic. Get ready, Catherine. Never underestimate the help. Or we can fold these together because they're really based on the same principle. This is sad. Let's gird ourselves. Never underestimate middle-aged women either, or aging women, I suppose we could say. And that is something that Christie has harped on time and time again. A murder is announced, for example. This is really a clue about people who are easily overlooked, who therefore can easily disguise themselves. So it links up with our second clue about costuming and disguises and that whole business with nuns. But if you are a servant, if you are an older woman in Christie, it often is easier for you to escape the notice of the people around you and to dress up as someone who you aren't and get away with that disguise. And we have a character here among our big cast who is both a servant and a middle-aged woman. That would be Miss Kilchrist. You know, we should note that there are references directly to Lord Edward Dies by Poirot, in fact. So we're also being told it by Christy referencing herself. Yeah, there is a direct reference to Lord Edgeware Dies. Yep. In this novel, never shall I forget the killing of Lord Edgeware. I was nearly defeated, yes, I, Hercule Poirot, by the extremely simple cunning of a vacant brain. The very simple-minded have often the genius to commit an uncomplicated crime and then leave it alone. (laughs) Curse you, Jane! And yeah, I actually like the idea of this being a really devious clue since Lord Edward Dies is so much about costuming and disguise, which which is crucial in this novel, because the proximate sort of reference there is just to Rosamond, right? Who is a bit of a Jane Wilkinson-ish character, because she doesn't really much like thinking. At all. But, At all. Um, it's a weirdly direct puzzle clue to this. Yeah, I like that. So clue number four, the paintings. So much chatter about paintings. Mr. Atwistle notes the smell of oil paint when he visits the cottage. 
Miss Gilchrist mentions that her father was a painter. Cora married a painter. Uh, she dabbled in it herself. She sought out lost masterpieces constantly. And then we have many, many comments of Susan's, which are very dismissive about Cora's own paintings, specifically about the one that we already mentioned that must have been painted from a postcard. So the deduction here is Christy's not going to be mentioning paintings in this book so often if paintings aren't going to be a matter of importance. And so we can make a logical deduction that one of the paintings in that cottage is in fact a secret masterpiece. And let's all cringe together. You can bet it's probably the one that seems kind of fake and or hastily painted. Yeah, we'll get there. All right. Clue number five, mirrors. At long last, after that sad dearth of mirrors, and they do it with mirrors. I know. I know. We get a book that actually has something to do with mirrors. Specifically, Helen's epiphany about the way that things are reversed in a mirror. That is what they're talking about immediately before Helen gets conked over the head when she's trying to explain her epiphany. I truly think this is one of the few weaknesses of the book, because I really defy any reader, even a supernaturally astute one, to deduce what the heck all this mirror talk is about. Yeah. I mean, if, if anyone, we've asked it's this before, the- we've asked this before and people have responded to us. If anyone really, truly was able to figure out what this mirror clue meant without having explained to them at the end of the novel, I want to hear from you. Message us on social media, email us, whatever. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I find it hard to believe. The tilt of the head, having to remember that from the beginning of the book and then allowing that Helen realizes that's the thing that was wrong to her. Yeah. This, by the way, the notion of, we should really explain it more fully in our resolution, but this idea of one tilting one's head one way in a mirror and it being reversed from the way it was supposed to be, that's the other thing that I remembered from Mm -hmm. my initial read, because it's such a shocking revelation once we get it. And once you know that, the rest of the story falls into place. I actually didn't remember who the murderer was or any of the plot. All I remembered was that something was off with a head tilt, which meant that Cora couldn't be Cora. And then I was able, as I was reading, to figure every single piece of this thing out from there. But I never would have gotten there on my own. That was because it was a reread. Let's explain what is going on here. So one of those seemingly useless secondhand paintings that Cora acquired was, in fact, a wait for it. I just can't even believe I'm saying this. It was a Vermeer. (laughs) Can you imagine going into like a thrift store and finding a Vermeer? (laughs) I feel for Miss Gilchrist in this moment because Miss Gilchrist saw it immediately and poor Cora, who just talked about paintings all the time, you know, she was clueless. And the only thing Miss Gilchrist wanted in her life was her little tea shop, which we hear about repeatedly from the very beginning of the book, which she lost in the war. She tried to work in an office. Eventually, she became a companion. She basically knew that she could get 2,000 pounds or so for the Vermeer, which also, let me again say, 2,000 pounds for a Vermeer. Yeah, it's 1953. I know. (laughs) The question is, how would you get it out of Cora's dumb clutches? Because turns out Miss Gilchrist also doesn't think a whole lot about Cora. Well, for once, Miss Gilchrist actually gets lucky because this is when Richard Abernethy dies 
a perfectly natural death. And Cora declares she's not going to the funeral. Again, she's estranged from her family. So what does Miss Gilchrist do? She drugs Cora. That would be the groaning in the cottage that those nuns heard the day of Richard's funeral. And Miss Gilchrist attends Richard's funeral as Cora, who no one had seen for 20 years. And we should also remember that Cora's sole surviving sibling, fake invalid Timothy, doesn't actually attend the funeral. He's too busy being a fake invalid to go to his own brother's funeral. Exactly. So there are no siblings there. It's just in-laws and nieces and nephews. Lanscombe knew her as a child, but it's been a really long time. And even though she looks different, people change over 20 years. So no one really suspects. And after the funeral, she plants the seed of Richard's murder, returns home to the cottage, axes Cora, Lizzie Borden style, which does get referenced in this novel. Yeah, it does. And she then pretends to find the body while planting all these other little bits of the story. Richard's supposed visit to Cora at her cottage, the conversation that Miss Gilchrist supposedly overheard between Richard and Cora about how he didn't trust someone in his family. All of this is fake. And uh, Miss Gilchrist knows that it's going to cause an investigation into the family and divert suspicion from the most obvious suspect, which, of course, is her, since she's the person who lived with Cora and had the opportunity by far. Then (laughs) Miss Gilchrist covered the Vermeer with that whole Flexen Harbor scene. So that no one would notice it. And she could pretend it was one of the sketches that Cora had left her to a Vermeer. She should be hanged for that alone. How did she get caught, Catherine? It was the moment that Cora said, but he was murdered, wasn't he? That didn't sit well with Helen because Miss Gilchrist accompanied it with a tilt of her head on one side, a quote unquote bird-like movement she'd practiced in the mirror. Which is why she tilted her head on the wrong side. That's what Helen's realization is. Much more importantly for Poirot is that she mentioned those wax flowers because the only time that she could have seen them on the green Malachite table was when she came for the funeral. They were gone when everyone reconvened. And that was the only time that Miss Gilchrist had been there as herself. And when she mentioned how beautiful they were on that table, Poirot immediately understood what had happened. And that's his philosophy, which has been consistent over the course of many novels, which is just get people to talk and sooner or later they slip up. Right. The end. Don't Touch That Dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming So before we talk about our rankings for this novel, we should talk a little bit about the two adaptations that exist for After the Funeral. The first is not entitled After the Funeral at all. It is Murder at the Gallop, which is the second of the four Margaret Rutherford MGM movies. 
And now it's just worth noting again, the first of these murders, she said, was an adaptation of 450 from Paddington. And that was a proper Marple novel. We haven't covered it yet. And even though Margaret Rutherford's spin on Miss Marple is nothing like Christie's original, we've also covered this before, that adaptation was at least recognizable. It was a Marple novel made into a Marple movie. This is the adaptation, I think, where the liberties that MGM were prepared to take became crystal clear. Obviously, this is a Poirot novel. Apparently, Christie herself was as much at a loss as to why they felt the need to switch out the detective as I was watching the movie. You know, Miss Marple's presence in this movie is super awkward. Half the time, she's listening outside of windows because there's no reason for her to be anywhere. Oh. And we obviously just saw MGM do the same thing with the third of the four Rutherford movies, which was an adaptation of Mrs. McGinty's Dead, which was the last right. Poirot novel we covered. So, you know, the oddity continues here in our review of those movies. And this is where I'm going to mention Bleak House. I just thought this was a really interesting tidbit per, of course, Mark Aldridge, our good friend in his book, Agatha Christie on screen. Just before this movie came out, Christie handed in her adaptation of Dickens's Bleak House to MGM because Christie did a feature length adaptation of Bleak House. She was always a huge fan of Dickens. And this was a project that was important to her. And she sent it in with a note saying that it was too long and she needed help shortening it. And we don't really know what the back and forth was like exactly between MGM and Christie on the script, but we do know that the script never made it to production. And Mark theorizes, I'm quoting here, it may be that this dismissal helped to feed Christie's dislike of the later MGM films. Although she was not sure of material about which to be disdainful. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like maybe she just hated them because she thought that they were garbage. But it's just interesting to think that that was something else that might have been coloring the relationship. You know, the only thing I think we can say in the movie's favor is that it does more or less follow the plot of the novel. That was something that would degrade as these MGM movies went on. And I will give it this, the impersonation slash costuming business as to Miss Gilchrist dressing up as Cora Lanskinay is handled pretty well here. She wears a heavy veil and when she's pretending to be Cora, the camera doesn't really rest on her for too long. And this is where adapting this novel gets tricky, right? Because it's one thing to be told <laughs> that Miss Gilchrist was dressing up as Cora at the beginning, but when we actually have to show it, I think it can be a little awkward. And unfortunately, that's a really good segue into our second adaptation of this novel, which is, of course, the David Suchet series. This was adapted in series slash season 10 of Agatha Christie's Poirot. It aired in 2006. That's season 10 of 13. So we we're definitely at the, in the latter portion of the series. My one fun fact on this is that David Suchet's own personal driver, whose name is Sean, and who was his daily companion as he was playing Poirot. I think he says that the only two people that heard every single line of his as Poirot are his wife and his driver, Sean, because he used to <laughs> practice a lot in the car. Um, Sean appears in this film, and it's his first ever screen appearance as Poirot's driver. That's a fun fact. I have to say, I actually really think this is a good adaptation. You're going to judge the costuming at the beginning, but like, you know, other than the fact that it's not very faithful, let me put it that way. It's not. They rejigger a lot of family dynamics. They do some simplification of the characters, which is fine also. I mean, this is probably Christie's most complex extended family in a novel. There's a reason why there's a family tree at the beginning of the novel. It's hard to keep well, track of everyone at first. Yeah, I think I, I think I referred to it to you, Kemper, as a little bit Baroque mm -hmm. <laughs> in that it has a lot going on and there was a way that they had to simplify it and some of the ways, especially at the very beginning, 
beginning with the train ride and the flashbacks, et cetera, are handled, I think, very well. Yeah. And also Michael Fassbender is in it. I might throw out a little Monday money if you all promise to be good. Not only is Michael Fassbender in it, but Michael Fassbender has an obligatory... You know how we've talked in the past about how all these late Suchet adaptations for some reason have a sex scene mm-hmm. in them? You wouldn't think this one would have one until you get almost to the end. And then only a few minutes before the end, it's like obligatory sex scene, except it's Michael Fassbender. We've got Michael Fassbender and Lucy Punch, right? <laughs> Taking a as, roll in the hay. As Susan, they are kissing and more cousins. Wait, cousins! It's all wrong. That is one of the uh, added elements here to this one. But I wasn't going to be unhappy with it. Yeah, it's fine. None of the changes really bothered me. I did just think that when Miss Gilchrist is dressed up as Cora in the beginning, maybe it's not fair because I knew what was going on there, but it felt weird to me and just it wasn't played off as convincingly as in the Margaret Rutherford just because we saw so much of her and it felt like an impersonation in a way that didn't feel convincing to me. Dear, dear Lanscombe. Do you remember when you used to bring meringues out to the treehouse? There's also a moment at the end when Miss Gilchrist is revealed, uh, you know, as the murderer. She kind of goes into like an Eliza Doolittle Cockney voice. Perhaps you'd like to come along with me, Miss Gilchrist. Of course, uh, I don't want to be any trouble. I can't have my little tea shop. Nothing much else matters. Ah, very silly of me. I, I always do the wrong thing. Ah, uh, uh, please forgive me. I, it was really very stupid. I'm uh, sorry. I'm uh, so sorry. I uh, That was not uh, effective, especially since it's such an effective scene at the end when she's her mincing, murmuring, ladylike self. Yeah, I think I would have been better off thinking it was an Eliza Doolittle voice because I took it as trying to seem like some oddly affected, mentally disturbed accent thing, which bothered me much more. Oh, I hope it wasn't that. (laughs) Because the next line I think that Suchet has is something to the effect of, It may be that she will be admitted to an institution. Otherwise, you know what? The actual Miss Gilchrist part is actually incredibly well done. It is. No, and the and the actress actually, especially when she is Miss Gilchrist, except for the very end, is fabulous. Like she's yeah. she she plays it to perfection. No, no, no. I I agree. It's good. Uh, you know, I always think that the Christie novels that hinge on costuming and disguise are the harder ones to adapt, even right. if they're some of her better novels. Lord Edgeware dies, three act tragedy. Witness for the prosecution relies very centrally on costuming and disguise. You got to get past that, even in the Billy Wilder version. And it's fine. I mean, and it is handled well, but it is a hurdle to get over. And I think this one does it mainly successfully, but it felt like a little bit of a shaky effort, especially in the beginning. That actually, I think, is a is a fairly good segue into our rankings, beginning with plot mechanics, because it's funny, my initial inclination was to say, well, this can't really be one of Christie's better puzzle mysteries because it relies so heavily on costuming and disguise. Mm. And I do, I do think that the reasons for why this book is as beloved as it is among Christy Ficinados, those reasons have somewhat to do with the puzzle mystery, but they, I think have mainly to do with the character work and the kind of tone and setting that she's constructing here. But it's almost, for me, it's almost closer to a straight novel that has a puzzle part in it. Right. Right. You know, so, so that is hard when you're going to, 
talk about plot mechanics in that regard. But the plot mechanics work too, right? And well, it's especially brilliant. if you think, especially, I mean, we don't normally talk about these this way, but if you talk about the plot mechanics primarily as a functioning plot of the book paced out, it's great. Yeah, I mean, here's where I think that there is a fundamental flaw with the puzzle mystery, which is that getting that baseline clue as to Cora tilting her head the wrong way and doing it because it was Miss Gilchrist practicing in the mirror. Poirot is supposedly able to figure that out, just given what we are given as readers. And I just don't believe it. I just don't think you can get there. Once you do get there, it all falls into place. And we could argue that the wax flowers clue also does get you there because at least shows you, well, it has to be Miss Gilchrist because she's lying. So she must be a murderer. So maybe you can back end into it that way, but it's a problem. But it has a different mechanical. I don't take it as a problem, but it has a different mechanical thing because what it has early on is an unnamed woman in a chapter on her own where all you know is that she's very much looking forward to having a lot of money and you're made to believe that that's Cora is how it's set up to be mm-hmm. but we've seen this before if you're not naming that it's Cora then it's another older lady and then you only have one or two options left Oh, that's really funny. John Curran actually points to that as one of the best sections in the book in terms of the plotting, like that specific. Oh, I think. No, 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 no. But that's why I said I think it's good in that reading it. I think it's really good. But as far as making it a puzzle mystery for me, for me, I was just like, oh, well, you can figure out what's going on here. Not the details about the painting, et cetera, but you can see the direction in which it's going and what to look for. It's like a pivotal piece of how you're looking at it. You're saying that just by not naming her, by referring to her as, Correct. quote, a lady in wispy morning and festoons of jet yeah. in that section, that it was obvious to you that, oh, well, then Cora can't be Cora. Right. I, I mean, I think that is very astute of you. I think there are a lot of readers that wouldn't pick up on that. No, and I don't think it's necessarily obvious. But to me, having not really remembered it, I got there, which is a few pages in. It was like, right. okay, she has done that before, right? The- she has. But that also is one of those cases where it's hard to be super critical because this is a reread. Right. So you never know what you're kind of subconsciously remembering or not. No, of course not. And again, and again, I think it's great. I loved reading this book. We always get back to this mechanics thing and how we're boarding points for it, etc. And I have a hard time with this one because I don't know that I think the puzzle part is that great in this. You know, I think some of the clues are like a little obscure, but I think that actually structurally it works really well. Here's how I would put it. I think that the puzzle, just the puzzle, and I'm not even talking about the plot or like the overarching novel structure. I think the puzzle mystery is brilliant and works brilliantly when you're on the other side of it. When every piece of it is being explained to you as a reader by Poro at the end, you're like, oh, okay. And it all fits in and it has that satisfying click of a Christie puzzle mystery. But it's one of those ones where it's just a little too hard to get there on your own. And I suppose it's possible. And that's why I said I would love to hear from people who got there on their own. And I'm sure they're out there. And you know what? I have one big note because I have another tiny little issue with what Christy did here in terms of the puzzle mystery. And it happens before we even get to any text. It's in that family tree. Because what Christy does in the family tree is she says, this is a family tree of the Abernathy family. And then she explains, those designated in bold were present at the funeral of Richard Abernethy. And Cora's name is bolded. Cora was not present at the funeral of Richard Abernethy. That's a lie. 
Well, quote unquote Cora was. Well, quote unquote Cora is not Cora. Here's what I think she should have done. It should have been not bolded. And then readers would have assumed it was a typo until they got to the end of the story. See, that doesn't bother me because we're supposed to assume the entire time that Cora is at the... The book doesn't work unless you assume that. Uh, We're supposed to assume that, but we're never supposed to be lied to. I think you could make the argument that Christy's lying to us with this family tree. Mm, Quote, unquote, Cora is at the funeral. Quote, unquote, Cora is not Cora. You know where Cora is? We're told where Cora is. She's sighing and groaning as two nuns are knocking on her door. See, now I think that's you being weirdly nitpicky on that because that doesn't bother me at all. I think it's a splendid puzzle and I'm in awe of it in a way that I'm not always because we just did. They do it with mirrors and talked about how simple it was and how it almost felt like a puzzle mystery that was more appropriate for a short story or a hater right. novella. Because yeah. it was it, there just wasn't much to it. This has a lot to it, even though she's using the same fundamental premise of the ultimate victim is not actually the ultimate victim core who seems like a side murder is the true murder. That's exactly what she did what they do with mirrors, but there's so much more elaboration going on here in terms of how she's obscuring that truth, and I really appreciate it. So just for the puzzle mystery, I would actually give it a fairly high high marks. I mean, I think it's also worth bringing into the discussion plot credibility as we do when when we're doing these, because I think that other than the Helen Abernethy attempted murder, which, like, doesn't really matter that much, like, and it's fine. It's not as bad as the later murder, and they do with mirrors. I actually think that this is incredibly believable, all of it. Because Miss Gilchrist is such a fantastic character, I believe that she did what she did and that she went to the lengths that she did and that she had to do that. She absolutely had to divert suspicion. I'm utterly convinced. I'm very torn on this. Where are you coming out? My initial inclination was to do a seven on plot mechanics and a six on plot credibility. Yeah, I guess so. That's probably doesn't seem as high as you thought I was going to go based on how enthusiastic I sounded. <laughs> well, it makes me feel slightly better. That's okay, then. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Like, this isn't superlative Christie. This isn't an eight oh, or no, nine you know, no, 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 hey, Well, superlative Christie overall, I think it gets up there. But yeah, in these categories, I don't know about that. And I do think that a a six is probably a little low, even for for plot credibility, because like I said, it is utterly believable to me. I mean, I would actually give it a seven and a seven. Well, I mean, also every non-puzzle part of this is exceedingly credible. I might have personally flipped them is sort of what I'm thinking. You know what? I'm actually okay with that because as I said, I mean, I'm I'm pointing up all of these little quibbles that you don't even care as much about and yet it's not overall working for you as well as I think it is for me. I think it just shows that there's something not firing on every single cylinder when it comes to plot mechanics, but I think that the problem is not as to credibility. I think that's no. what we're kind of identifying here. Yeah. So I'm actually more than happy to flip that. I, yeah, let's say six for plot mechanics and seven for plot credibility. I may be arguing to goose those up a little bit when we, when we do our next rankings conversation. Sure. Just fair warning. All right. Let's talk about series long characters. I think this is going to be the lowest category. Yeah. It's not bad, Poirot, by any means. It's not. It's just not a whole lot of him. I mean, here's the issue. He doesn't come in until a third of the way through the book. That is just way too late. And let's be honest, the real detective in this novel is Mr. Entwistle. Even even after Poirot comes in and Mr. Entwistle is the one who brings him in, Entwistle still does 
a lot of the investigating. And then Poirot also brings in Mr. Gobi. And while I have no problem with Mr. Gobi, I... Well, and, and Inspector Morton, and to some degree, Susan. Totally. It's a little bit like in The Body in the Library when we had uh, about six detectives and Miss Marple got lost in the shuffle. That's, that's a little bit of the effect here. I mean, he doesn't get lost in the shuffle at all here, but like to the extent that he is a huge presence up until the end, pretty much, he's not. I mean, to the extent that one with as large a presence as Hercule Poirot could get lost in the shuffle, he does, would be my argument. And you're right. It's not like the Miss Marple effect, because she can sometimes get lost in the shuffle, because she doesn't grandstand as much as he does. We do see him here, but I didn't feel him as much as I'm used to in a Poirot novel. I came out on a four. That seems low. You gotta give him at least a five. There have been worse Poirots. I'll do a five. I'm fine with that. Then book-specific characters, I think, does really well. I mean, I feel similarly to how I felt in They Do It With Mirrors. I don't think that there's a flat character here. There are certainly books that have better characters overall. This isn't Five Little Pigs. But Christy really knew what she was doing at this point. And it's nice to see that, too, when we're reading these books as closely as we are. And there's this narrative I think people have that, oh, by the time she got into the 50s, she was just sort of on autopilot. And the books are really flat and characterless and it's just about the puzzles. No, it's not. These characters, and again, as we were saying, almost all of them have nothing to do with the puzzle mystery. John Curran actually notes that Lanscombe mm-hmm. is the last of Christie's fully fleshed out Butler characters, since Butlers were basically on the edge of extinction at this point. So it just didn't make sense to have butlers as characters after this. He's great. I love the sequences from his point of view in the beginning when he's opening up the house to the mourners coming in after the funeral and, you know, we get his thoughts on the family. Um, I think um, Entwistle is really good. Yep. Most of the relatives are pretty good. Susan was very much a Sophia Leonides. She's like the soul. It's a very specific type. Yeah. Right. She's like the only capable one. She's got a good head on her shoulders. It's a large family with a patriarch that was recently murdered. Unlike Sophia, she is married to a crazy person. We should mention, by the way, there is a side plot for a couple of pages wherein Susan's crazy husband, Greg, all of a sudden says, I killed Richard Abernethy. Also, there's a weird accusation. It's from Poirot against Susan that she could be the murderer because she wants the money for her crazy husband. Yeah. And Rosamond and her husband, I mean, they're extremely messy marriage. He's cheating on her. She's off on her own. Right. And I, I, I do have to appreciate, by the way, both Rosamond and her husband, Michael, are actors mm-hmm. and they had nothing to do with it. Also, Rosamond goes to Harley Street at one point in the novel. And I it know. turns out she's not dying. She's pregnant. So good on Christy, upending those expectations there. <laughs> no, those are all good. And and we haven't even hit your new love of your life, Gemper. Oh, Miss Gilchrist. Miss Gilchrist. I'm going to make a fairly grand pronouncement here. I think Miss Gilchrist is one of Christy's best characters. I think she's a really unsung Christy character. This book overall is somewhat of an unsung Christy. We mentioned this, I think, at the end of our last episode, that among Christy aficionados, it's celebrated, but it's certainly not one of like the first five or even ten Christies that a casual reader would mention. But, I mean, Miss Gilchrist, as she's being led away and she's just sort of gone into this 
fugue state about her tea shop and she's she's murmuring about what the napkins would look like and the place settings and the tablecloths and I think it's Susan that shudders and says oh I never imagined a lady like murderer and her relationship with Cora too which has depths to it we haven't even yet plumbed I think she's brilliantly drawn do you know who she reminded me a little bit of and why perhaps you like her so much she reminded me a little bit of Cecilia Williams who's Angela's governess in Five Little Pigs mm-hmm Mm-hmm. The way that Christie creates his character with these little details, I mean, at one point when Mr. Entwistle meets her and she has to make very clear that she does none of the rough, meaning the more rough housework, that even though she does housework for Cora, it's the light housework. She cooks and does light mm-hmm. cleaning, like that's very important to her. And she's right. very fastidious. The whole time when she's showing Mr. Entwistle the bed and she talks about the body and Christie has her gulping before she says, oh, the body and even the wedding cake thing. I mean, that's also what's so brilliant about that whole ploy. When you feel so bad for Miss Gilchrist that she put a piece of wedding cake underneath her pillow in the silly belief that she would dream of her husband. No, she didn't. She was doing that to pretend that someone else was trying to murder her so that she could get away with the murder that she had already committed. And I believe all of it. Oh, she's absolutely cold-blooded. Yeah. It's what people always say about Miss Marple, right? Where it's like, well, Miss Marple is both actually a gossipy spinster who lives in a village and also a person with one of the best brains in all of England. Like she's both things at once. Miss Gilchrist is too. I mean, she truly is that person who she's presenting to the world. But then behind it, there is also this cold blooded calculating spider who is trying to get what she wants, which is a tea shop, which again is so such a sort of maiden ladyish thing to want. It's so no, but you just you do sort of understand that like her entire life was destroyed when she lost the only thing that she really loved, and she saw an opening to get that back, and she took it in the most brutal way possible. I think we also have to talk a little bit about the nature of the relationship between Cora and Miss Gilchrist, because at one point it's described as, quote, a household of mistress and dog's body with no feverish feminine friendship about it. I love that word dog's body. I think it's really an open question whether or not Christie is implying that there was, in fact, some sort of a lesbian relationship between Miss Gilchrist and Cora. There is a pretty blunt reference for Christie to lesbianism early on in the book, and it's when Susan is talking to Mr. Entwistle, and she says, so Aunt Cora's death left her high and dry? Did she, were she and Aunt Cora on intimate terms? And all those dashes and hesitations are built into the text. I'm not adding that. And then Christy writes, Mr. Entwistle looked at her rather curiously, wondering just what exactly was in her mind. Moderately so, I imagine, he said. She never treated Miss Gilchrist as a servant. That's not an oblique reference. No. And in a way... You know, I mentioned already that John Curran had compared the brutality of the murder in this book to Hercule Poirot's Christmas and One to Buckle My Shoe. He actually was comparing it in a critical way, though, because one of the things he seemed not to like as much about this book was that the brutality wasn't required because in Hercule Poirot's Christmas, obviously, there's that elaborate locked room mystery. So there's a reason why there has to be blood everywhere and it has to be a particularly gruesome death. In One to Buckle My Shoe, that corpse has to be unrecognized recognizable. And here, 
Curran was arguing, she could have easily just been shot in the head with a gun. She could have been poisoned. Well, instead it's well, instead it's like personal. Yeah, that's the thing. I actually think that Christy knew exactly what she was doing. I think the idea that Miss Gilchrist brutally hatcheted this woman is supposed to be a little bit of an indication that there was some weird stuff going on. In a way, this to me is a contrast with the same-sex relationship she depicted in A Murder is Announced. This is not Miss Hinchcliffe and Miss Murgatroyd. And you know why? Because Miss Hinchcliffe and Miss Murgatroyd were on an equal footing. Right. And that's the whole thing with Miss Gilchrist, with everyone in her life. She's not on equal footing with with anyone. Where they're so uneven and yet intimate at the same time. I think Christy even going out of her way to say that it was a household with, quote, no feverish feminine friendship about it is her way of suggesting that there was. I'm not saying that there is an answer as to what the nature of their relationship was, but I think there's just so much to chew on (laughs) as a reader over Miss Gilchrist in and of herself and also in terms of her relationship with Cora when you really start to sit down and think about these novels beyond their puzzles. In Christie, there so often is so much more to think about, and I think this novel is a great example of that. I think it's pretty clear that there's a lot going on with these characters, and I would give it a seven. I agree. Okay, fantastic. And then we get to setting and tone. The setting is very good because we didn't mention, but this book is actually dedicated to James Watt, who was Christie's brother-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, who married her sister Madge, and they lived at Abney Hall. And we've talked about Abney Hall a bunch. You know, Christy spent her later childhood there. She was constantly going back there for holidays in her adult life. That's where she went actually to kind of recuperate after her disappearance and that whole disaster. Abney Hall is kind of the model for any of her grand estates. We saw Christy making fun of it when she called Stony Gates a Victorian lavatory and they do mirrors, even styles and the mysterious affair at styles. It's very obviously the model for chimneys in The Secret of Chimneys and The Seven Dials Mystery. So the dedication is apt because Enderby is also very obviously modeled on Abney Hall. And uh, John Curran actually noted there's this little scene where Poirot talks to Rosamond beside a waterfall. What Christie writes is, it was a little stream that cascaded down at a waterfall and then flowed through rhododendron thickets. And that waterfall exists at Abney. And there are apparently lots of little setting flourishes that the show she's she's writing from life, which we can often tell when that's happening in in a Christie. And um, I really appreciated the setting. I even like the depictions of the cottage and of the paintings and of the sort of drab life there that seems to be punched up by these odd art collections. The descriptions even about people's whereabouts, which again, we glossed over a little bit, but even those uh, descriptions are all excellent. I think this really has a lot going for it in both setting and tone and in in likability. We've been kind of tossing in the sort of readability enjoyment factor a little bit here. And I think, you know, it's to be highly recommended. I agree with that. I think that's actually such a good point that it's not just Enderby that's well-described, but the cottage is well-described. It's like you can see the cottage crowded with paintings all over its walls and smelling of oil paint and the rickety furniture. I mean, I gave a shout out earlier to the sequence where Poirot first appears. That's delightful, too. It's a very roving book. We get scenes in London. We get scenes at Enderby. We get scenes in this village. It's all over the place. And we really feel all those places in a way we don't always with Christy. 
I totally agree with that. And I do think it's generally a zippily written book for one of Christie's longer books. It is it is a fast read and also has a lot of flair for Christie writing in the third person. This reminded me more of Mrs. McGinty's dead and less of they do it with mirrors because <laughs> Mrs. Right. McGinty's dead actually also surprisingly for as kind of dark and gruesome as that one is had some of that flair. And I, there were just a couple of passages I wanted to highlight. One is that when we see Pierre Lansquenet's terrible paintings, that's Cora's French painter husband, they're described as quote nudes executed with a singular lack of draughtsmanship, but with much fidelity to detail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, very anatomical. And there was also a really good moment with Poirot and Rosamond at the end when Poirot is talking about how Susan is born to succeed because she's going to start this cosmetic shop. God, we haven't even mentioned Susan's cosmetic shop. Well, and we also haven't mentioned Rosamond's play. Yes, and Rosamond's play that's which going we to get, make Michael you know, a star. I know, which we get several pages on, too. Oh, yeah. But Poirot says, you know, Susan is born to succeed, quote, like her uncle. And then Rosamond is like... You mean Richard, I suppose, not Timothy. And Poirot responds, assuredly not like Timothy. And then they just openly laugh. Laugh. I know. (laughs) Poor Timothy. There's a lot of fun in this book, which also has a lot of darkness. I mean, I've said this so many times. That's some of my favorite Christie when she's able to do the light and the dark in the same book and make it cohere. Would be remiss if I didn't mention there's a reference to tinned fish at one point. And also, also, there is a topic referenced no fewer than seven times. I kept a count. Taxes. Oh, taxes. Well, there it's, is so I mean, it's, pri- it's, primarily, it's primarily Timothy has some real issues with the British government. Yes. And they're all kind of obsessed with their finances. And there's always a way to mention taxes in the post-war setting because everyone's like, oh, you know, all of my money's going to taxes, blah, blah, blah. And it's always tangential, but it just happens over and over and over again. It's really funny. Yeah. I came out on an eight. Yeah. It was my highest category. Great. I have zero deductions for Stuck in Its Time. The depiction of Greg is probably not great, but other than that, yeah, I don't yeah, I, mean, I don't Greg know is that's a un- full I don't know it's a full deduction. Right. I mean, Greg is an unconvincing crazy person. I will note, you know, Christy early in her life had an experience with a chemist who seemed a bit crazy, and that actually inspired a much later novel of hers that I'm not even going to name because that would be in and of itself a little bit of a spoiler. I'm sure many people know what I'm talking about. So perhaps there was a soupçon of that going on here in Crazy Chemist Greg. I think we're at a zero for Stuck in Its Time. That sounds fair. Okay. All right. That brings us to our tallying up of this title. We have got a grand total of six plus seven plus five plus seven plus eight minus zero for 33 points, putting after the funeral in a big old tie. Here's what we got, Catherine. Okay. In 10th place, we have Peril End House, followed by Cards on the Table, The ABC Murders, Sad Cypress, and Towards Zero. They are all at 33 points. Where do you feel this title belongs in and among there? I suppose it probably goes above Sad Cypress. I totally agree. Look at that. It's certainly better than Towards Zero, and I think it's a bit better overall than Sad Cypress, but probably both After the Funeral and Sad Cypress are great Christies for similar reasons. Because they're so, incredibly well-written, I think, more than perhaps, at least in my book, the actual puzzle of it. It's the actual meat of the reading experience, I think is great on both of them. I agree. I definitely come out a little more highly on just the overall plotting 
of this one, which is why I think I might potentially be arguing for it to be higher. But you know what? This is now in the 13th spot among 44 titles and looking at the titles that are above it. I don't think that it actually does belong above any of those titles. I'm very comfortable with the ABC murders cards on the table and Peril at Endhouse being above it. And then above that, you know, we have our top 10. So I think this makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I like where it lands. I should note with 44 titles under our belt, we are now officially two thirds of the way through the Christie canon. That is after the funeral. Join us next time for a short story. And you know what? We are still going to be spending some time with our dear Belgian detective because we will be discussing the foreword to the labors of Hercules and the first labor of Hercules within that collection, the Nemean Lion. That is a favorite collection among many Christie fans. So I'm very excited that we have finally at long last gotten to the labors of Hercules. Well, we should note that we have touched on it before. We've covered one of them. That's true. We covered the capture of Cerberus in our Countess Rosikoff themed episode. So we have we have 11 of them to cover. We would love to hear from you as to how you feel about After the Funeral and anything else. Please feel free to check us out on our Patreon account, especially if you are itching for some more material these days, as you very well may be. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we really would appreciate it if you would give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.